Good morning, brothers and sisters. If you will, please turn in your text this morning to 2 Thessalonians, as we'll be considering chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. But for context's sake, I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. So hear with me then the reading of God's word. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and all and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. As far as the reading of God's word, brothers and sisters, our God, the God of the Holy Scriptures, is a personal God. Yes, he is transcendent, meaning that he is infinitely exalted above every creature. Yet it is also true that God is imminent. God is present, and he is present in his creation. Now, the Deus would like us to think that God created the world and then took a giant step back and then just allowed the world to move on without any further divine intervention. Many people, Christians included, like to think that maybe God does intervene, but that when he intervenes, it is only for those things that we would consider to be good reasons for his intervention. Maybe someone claimed God intervened in healing them. Or maybe someone beat out a number of other qualified applicants for a job they wanted, so they attribute the reason they got the job to God's intervention. But no matter the scenario, my point is this that many think that God only intervenes in order to heal people or help people with a job or help a married couple conceive or save a child from getting hit by a car. All things we see as favorable to us. But never do we think that God would intervene to bring about something that people might consider to be detrimental to his creation. But is this what the scripture actually says? And how does this fit with what we've been covering over the past few weeks as we've looked at this man of sin. Well, in order to understand the connection, let's recap quickly what we went over last week, just highlighting key elements of verses 1 through 10, as verses 11 and 12 today are an extension from where, of where we left off last week. And so chapter 2 details, once again, what must occur before the Lord returns. And remember we said that that was the great apostasy in the revealing of the man of sin. Yet we said that last week that something was restraining this man of sin until he comes. And what restrains him, I believe, is the gospel. Right? The gospel has to first be preached to all nations. And in fact, this is what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 24. The completion of the disbursement of the gospel to the ends of the earth currently is what restrains the man of sin. And last week, in speaking of the gospel's restraint, I said that after it reached its ends, it would it would cease. But I think I could have been clear in my statement, and so I think a better way to think about it or to speak about it is that the is completion is a better way uh, to 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 think about that, not uh, cease, but that it will be complete. Because what I wanted to convey was the idea that the gospel is restraining the man of sin but will eventually cease only in its progressive spread over time, reaching all parts of the world. And that occurs once it's reached that final soul or the final land. But I'm not sure that it came across that way, so I want to clarify. 
It's not as if the gospel will never be proclaimed to one again once it reaches its completion. But it has an intended goal, reaching the corners of the world. And while that goal is unfulfilled, the man of sin is restrained by it until it comes to completion. And so I hope if there is any confusion, that served to help. Now, we also said last week that the one who does the restraining was the angel in Revelation chapter 20. And he restrains Satan, and toward the end of the age, or the end of the thousand years, the angel will then be taken out of the way as restrainer, as Revelation chapter 20 verse 3 tells us, that Satan will then be loosed for a little while to deceive many more, adding to the great number of apostates. So once more, to bring it all full circle, the, the gospel restrains, and that it has a purpose that Satan cannot thwart, which is its worldwide proclamation. And then once that has occurred, the restrainer, who is the angel, will be removed, so Satan can wreak greater havoc, cause a massive results, and make many more sons and daughters of perdition, right before Christ's final return and destruction of this man of sin. And every son and daughter of perdition will be made such through the power of Satan by all false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception we read in verses 9 and 10. And although these people will be deceived by the man of sin, it isn't because anyone holds a gun to their head, but rather they willingly follow after lies because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And it is these people, members of Antichrist's kingdom, who Paul then goes on to describe in verses 11 and 12 today. And this becomes more obvious to us, because as we read in verse 11, verse 11 begins with, Therefore, therefore, which attaches itself to his previous statement. So because we read in verse 10 that they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, what is it we read in verse 11? Paul says, Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And it is in verse 11 that we find our answer to the question I posed in my introduction. Does Scripture give us a picture of a God who only intervenes favorably for people or does he also intervene in ways people might deem negatively? Well, we can look at the words of Paul himself. What is it that he said? He says, because people refuse to love the truth, God sent a strong delusion. So what? So that these people would be condemned. You see, God indeed is the one who dispenses plagues and calamities. And for some, in fact, he dispenses them for the very purpose of condemning. And Paul needs to say this to the church in Thessalonica because as we've read over the past few weeks, the reality of the situation was that there were some among them who were guilty of refusing to love the truth and so be saved. And so what might surprise people is that God doesn't always intervene to save these people, but rather as a result of their unbelief, he sends a plague so that they are further deceived. And it is this plague of delusion that we want to focus our attention on this morning. And we will look at it under three headings this morning. The first is that God is its sender. Point two is that it was sent because of unbelief and unrighteousness. And then the third point is what this teaches believers. So point one, God is the sender of this plague. 
Now, this should not surprise us. It shouldn't be a surprising point to any of us, because the scripture is riddled with evidence that supports this understanding of plagues and calamities. And I, in fact, think many Christians today would absolutely affirm that because God is sovereign, of course nothing happens outside of his control. But then what I think we end up doing, perhaps, in an effort to get God off the hook, when mass casualty ensues as a result of such calamity, or in a text like, like ours today, when we read that a, a great apostasy will occur, where a great number will be led to eternal destruction, what we like to do is we like to attribute such events to second causes. And what I mean by that is many will say, God, yes, he simply allows Satan to blind these people through false teachers as a result of their rejection of God. Right, So he just kind of stands by and lets it happen. So that it's not really God who does it. But this is in fact the opposite of what we read today. Paul says it's God who is the director and the cause of this blinding. Satan did not send this delusion, but God did. It was Robert Rollick who was a Scottish reformer of the 16th century who likened God's sending of this plague of delusion, or as he calls it, the blinding of the minds of unbelievers, to that of a king who sends a hangman to hang a thief or a murderer. And many, upon hearing that, might be taken aback by the comparison. Right? Wait, God's like a king who sends a hangman to bring about someone's demise? And although some might not like it, this is most certainly an accurate representation of what God has done in his sending this plague of delusion that we read of today. God is the one whom the entire world must stand before and give an account to, justly sends this plague into the world to execute his judgment upon the world and those people who are guilty of breaking the king's laws, just like the thief and the murderer. And so just like the king who sends the hangman to execute justice, God we see has sent Antichrist to the man of sin into the world, likewise, to plague the world and to execute his justice upon it. This is how verse 11 and 12 fits with what comes before it. Paul tells the saints, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There are already those among them who have and who will continue to fall away from the truth. And they will continue to believe what is false. And as a result, God will send the man of sin to the world to blind them even more so that they'll believe even more earnestly than what is false. You see, God's sending of this delusion ensures that Satan's deception exercised by the man of sin will prevail against those who have sought after. And God doesn't do this by causing anyone to sin, but rather he accomplishes it by withholding his grace to resist. Yes, he withholds his grace to resist, and God has every right to do so. No man or woman is deserving of grace, and if the sinner is so inclined to love what is false and to take pleasure in righteousness, God is under no obligation to stop them. We see this, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 16, where the Lord tells Jeremiah that he's not to take a wife from among the people, because they were going to be destroyed. 
and they were going to be destroyed, he tells Jeremiah, because they went after other gods, and they worshipped these other gods, and they have forsaken the law of God. In verse 12 of chapter 16, we read this, For behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. And then in verse 13, Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land, into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. You see here, God withholds his favor. He withholds his grace. He withholds his restraining power and thus leaves the sinner to themselves. This is the same thing we read in the New Testament. We read this in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Paul says this, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. You see, it is this removal of restraining grace and the giving over to sin that Paul is describing in our text today. But I want you to see something, brothers and sisters. God is no monster, as some might like to make him out to be. You see, people want to make it a point that God must respect the creature's free will. And so they shouldn't have any objection then to our text today. Because we see, God doesn't control people like robots, or make them do anything they don't want to do. Some in Thessalonica reject him and his word, and so he doesn't coerce them into belief. He says that if this is what you want, have at it. God will give them over to their sin and punish them with more sin. And when a man is in his corrupted state, and does not have the restraint of God withholding him, anymore, he will run headlong into all sorts of sin. And sin only leads to more sin, and to an even greater degree of sin, and an even stronger enslavement and bondage to sin. But they can offer no complaint to God. This is exactly what they desire. And even then, God is still gracious, and that he allows the gospel to be proclaimed to all people. It's not as if God says, these people are so bad, hide the gospel from them. No, he gives them plenty of opportunity. They hear the warnings and threats of the law. They hear the promises of the gospel. They're urged to repent and believe. They're told of everlasting destruction and everlasting life. And yet they choose, like Pharaoh, to harden themselves against God. It is the light of the gospel that the Lord allows to first go forth before destruction will come. This in itself is an act of grace because God is not obligated to offer the gospel. Sin brought forth death. God is just to bring any one of us sinners to our demise at any time. But God, through the gospel, is providing us opportunity while being long-suffering. As the gospel restrains Satan for a time, until its light has illuminated all the land, but this will not last forever. 
And at the end of the age, God's vengeance is the only proper response to the rejection of that light. This is why Calvin can say, the right season of vengeance was after grace had been rejected. See, those who are departing from the faith of Thessalonica, they heard the word rightly proclaimed over and over, and yet they have rejected it. So they at that time, and all who likewise reject the truth, are receiving their just judgment. Yet that judgment occurs by degree. Man goes to hell by degree, step by step. And it's restraining force of the gospel that helps to cement that fact that this is exactly where they belong because they refuse to believe in the one whom the gospel presented. They said, no to the great physician. I'm well, I have no need for your healing hand. And so no one can say that God is unfair. For in the sending of the gospel, God has left them with no excuse, and they can raise to God no rebuttal. And this then leads us into our second point, point two then for this morning, which is that this plague of delusion was sent because of unbelief and unrighteousness. You see, all who forsake Jesus for the lie are condemned, Paul says because they did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And not only did they not believe the truth, but they have contempt for the truth. It's not enough for people to just say, it isn't for me, but they have contempt and hatred for the message. This, though, should be expected, because great contempt was likewise shown to the one whom the message is about. We read in in Luke chapter 23 verse 11 you can read that when Jesus was before Herod that we that Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him and if Jesus himself we read was looked at and treated with contempt most assuredly his word would also be and this is exactly what we see happening in John's gospel if you remember or we can recall in John chapter 8, Jesus has this long discourse with the Jews over who Jesus, in fact, was. And he says to them in verse 43, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Right? This unbelieving world today, in many respects, cannot bear to hear the word of God spoken. They hate its message. They have contempt for a message that says, none are good and all need a Savior. They have contempt for a message then that says that Jesus alone is that Savior. Many have contempt for a message that excludes personal works of righteousness as a means to obtain salvation. And many have contempt for a message that they feel does not allow them to have fun. But all of this stems from an issue of the heart. For we all know the words of Jesus in Matthew 6 when he says, Where your treasure is, so there your heart will be also. And so, fun for one whose heart is darkened by sin finds its satisfaction only in unrighteousness. But we must see here and understand that heart and mind cannot be divorced. If we just look back to John 8 once more, in fact, Jesus points this out. In verse 42, which comes right before what we just read, 
when he asks the Pharisees why they can't understand his words, he says this, If God were your father, you would love me. You see, the reason that they could not receive his word as truth is because they did not love Christ in their heart. People can only set their minds on what they love. Robert Rollick, in fact, says, Wickedness and malice begin in the heart, so that when truth is offered to the mind, the malice of the heart will not allow it to enter. You see, just as we went over a few weeks prior, saying that it was callous hearts that make way for corrupt religion, we see that evident here in what Paul says. Right, The heart leads them, and the heart is wicked. And so they only want to hear what makes their vile hearts happy. They want to hear the message that you can be a Christian and live no different from the world. They want to hear a message that says if you sin, you can perform some works and be absolved of your sin. People want a message that says that as long as you do more good than bad, you'll go to heaven. And that's because they take such great pleasure in their in their unrighteousness that they don't want anyone telling them that they must forego it, that they must let it go. They don't want to hear that no one who makes life one big practice of sin will ever enter the kingdom of heaven. And instead, that if you take pleasure in your unrighteousness, then you will reap its reward, which is eternal destruction. But this is the very message Paul delivers in verse 11 and 12. Those who are deceived by Satan have allowed themselves to be overcome by the mystery of lawlessness. Those who follow after the man of sin, those who fall away from the faith, fall into deception because it is what they want. They receive the very message their hearts find most enjoyment in. They don't love Christ. They don't love his word. And they don't love the church. They prefer Satan to God. And they take great pleasure in unrighteousness, despising true righteousness, which comes only through Christ, which is why they will be condemned. And as a just judgment now, God will take away his restraining power, so that they will have no ability to withstand sin's attraction. This, brothers and sisters, is the plague of delusion. They now fall into a deeper deception as God will lead them to themselves. And so in learning about this plague of delusion, which comes upon those who belong to the kingdom of Antichrist, the question is, what should this teach us? What should we learn from this? And this is our third and final point in this morning. Well, brothers and sisters, first we learn this, that no matter how devoted someone is to their belief system, whether they identify as a Roman Catholic, as Jehovah's Witness, as Mormon or Muslim, if you are not a follower of Christ, you do not believe in the truth and you will not be saved. Either you will love Christ and serve him, assenting to and placing your trust in his word and finding your delight in him, or you will, no matter how well-intentioned, become a servant to sin and Satan, and be deceived by his lies. But only because your heart longs for that, and as a result you will assent to and trust in what is false. 
And brothers and sisters, this is the reason why we preach Christ crucified. Because the just judgment for the one who follows lies and takes pleasure in unrighteousness is eternal damnation. And we don't want to see this for anybody. And yet we learn that for those who reject the truth and love the lie, for those who belong to the kingdom of Antichrist, no amount of judgment will change their mind and motivate them to see the error of their ways and to turn to Christ and so be saved. Temporal judgment oftentimes is given not to turn people to God, but to confirm their condemnation. And yet, even though some see this as something negative, as something God would never do to his creation, it isn't to be looked at as negative, but good. Because even in doing so, it brings God glory and allows the justice of God to be seen by all. And so it's important for believers, it's important for the church to be able to recognize even the most subtle shifts away from the truth of God's word so we don't fall into believing what is false. As soon as Jesus, seeing deception take root, he pointed it out. In Matthew chapter 15, as the Pharisees asked why Jesus and his disciples break with the tradition of the elders, not washing their hands before they ate, Jesus responded saying this, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Concluding in verses 8 and 9, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, falsehood is to have no place in the worship of God. And likewise, then we must be quick to remove any falsehood that we see suddenly start to enter. But it is here, once again, we see that heart-mind connection. The Pharisees' hearts were far from God as read. And because of this, they taught a lie. And so we also ought to be petitioning the Lord, if believers, for a heart more swelled up with love towards God and His Word. And if you're not a believer, you ought to be calling out to the Lord for a heart to believe. Because without a new heart, you will not receive the truth of God's Word. Also, as a church, we must then learn that with hearts that reflect the love of God in Christ Jesus, it is our duty as a church to preserve the truth of the Word in our congregations. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 28, to go out into the world teaching them what He had commanded. This is the church's calling today as well. This is what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. He says this, Command and teach these things. Then in verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And these are the things the church must commit themselves to. And yet one last thing our text ought to teach us this morning is that during times of plague and calamity, the church always has a place to go to and a person to turn to. Although when plagues arise, the ungodly may sink further down into sin as they continue to reject the truth, as God removes his grace, just as Pharaoh was guilty of. We as his children have been given means to obtain his protection in these times, and we do well if we use it 
when distressed. Right? God gave us his word. He gave us prayer and the ability to offer him praise. He gave us the sacraments. He gave us the fellowship of the saints. In times of plague or calamity, in times when afflicted or suffering, let us lean on these graces that he has provided the saints in order that we might draw near to him. For we know that the one who sent this strong delusion into the world, in order that those who do not love the truth would believe what is false and so be condemned, he is also the one who sent his Son into the world to save those who would believe what is true. And it is by faith, brothers and sisters, we hold on to those promises contained in the gospel and take courage in all times that God knows what is best and God will always do what is best for his saints. We know that although God sent the Antichrist into the world to be a plague unto it, that its purpose isn't to delude us, but rather it tests us, as James says. The testing of your faith produces patience. God is molding, and he is crafting us in this age. He is conforming us to Christ. He is refining us through the fiery trial for our benefit, which means God is not distant. God is not cold, and God is not impersonal. But he is very near and close. And in fact, his spirit indwells each and every one of you, keeping us from the evil one. This is the message Paul is conveying to the saints. This strong delusion is for the one who's perishing, the one who's already spiritually dead. But for you who have the new birth, for you who have been risen with Christ to newness of life, this strong delusion serves a very different purpose. Because we were called by God to obtain glory and everlasting life in Jesus Christ. And if you believe that, then like the psalmist David says in Psalm 138, verse 7 and 8, you likewise can say this, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. May the Lord fulfill his purpose for each and every one of you here at Covenant Baptist Church. And we are sure that our God will do exactly that. Brothers and sisters, please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, you govern the entire world and order all things according to your good pleasure. We thank you for this, as this provides comfort to the saints, knowing that you work all things out for the good for those who love you. We pray, Lord, for greater love for you and for greater love for your word. For discerning minds, we pray for, so that we don't likewise fall into deception. Yet, Father, we also seek forgiveness, for too often we are indifferent to so much of the truth you revealed to us in your Son. And we ask you, Lord, that by your Spirit you would apply the truth of your message to our hearts this very day, in order that you might be honored and glorified. And it is in this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.